Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we'll be joined by Rodri Davis, who is the philanthropy expert in residence at the Pear Foundation. And he's going to chat about what he thinks the coming year will hold for charities. And this week's Good News Bulletin will be presented by our colleagues, editorial assistant Alina Martin and Amy Horton, a trainee journalist who has joined the editorial team for a two-week work experience placement. We'll let them introduce themselves later on. But first, welcome back to the mic, Emily. Thank you. First time back on. Um, Yeah. Have you got any New Year's resolutions for 2022? Well, I am doing dry January for the first time ever in my life. So um, yeah, I'm actually finding it really interesting. I definitely feel very uh, awake, but also I feel like my weeks have much less structure (laughs) than they normally would because normally I get to Friday and I'm ready for a gin and tonic, but um, I'm not having that. But yeah, I'm halfway there pretty much now. So feeling good about it. Um, And my only other resolution is a really silly one because I don't really agree with um, very big serious resolutions and um, my New Year's resolution yeah, inspired by your mother which oh. sounds like very strange but you can contextualise <laughs> it a bit is uh, I, I am uh, trying to befriend uh, the robin in my garden uh, he is very fat and very adorable and um, I am going outside every day uh, in an effort to become his very good friend that's my I don't know how long it will last. Can I do it for a year? Who knows? But that's what I'm up to. Oh, yeah. So for listeners, uh, my mum has a little robin that sits outside the front door and waits for her every day when she comes out to do the garden. And I was working from home in the run up to Christmas and sort of mum was there talking to a robin in the back of my Zoom calls. And it was very cute. Um, and uh, yes, much loved. And it was one of the most wholesome things that I've ever seen in my life. She just, but we were talking, we were having a meeting and she crossed behind Rebecca over her shoulder with a tiny pot of seed for the robin. And she was like, yeah, no, he's hungry. He's angry because I'm late this morning with his food. And I was just like, I need some of that in my life. And so I'm going outside every lunchtime uh, to sit in the garden for 10 minutes and um, just be around him uh, so he gets used to me. And then I'm going to start, you know, trying to ply him with various bits of seed. Amazing. Um, amazing. How about you? Do you have any resolutions? Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not huge on New Year's resolutions, as similar to you. Um, but I, I've only, I think I've only kept two in my life. Uh, one was to go vegetarian, age 12. And the other was... I went to a rubbish New Year's Eve party full of very smug couples and I thought I need to I need to sort my life out so I, I joined online dating and met my husband. So he was he's a New Year's resolution I've kept, I guess. Um so what I'm hearing is that you uh you you commit to New Year's resolutions sparingly, but when you do, you're heckin' effective at it. Yeah, I mean it's about once every fifteen years, yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, so I my New Year's resolutions this year are to learn more Hindi because at the moment my Hindi is largely platitudes and swear words. Um so, you know, the cooking was lovely, auntie. Your your sari is beautiful. And then some un- unmentionable things that I won't repeat on the podcast um, for the benefit of our, our Hindi speaking listeners. But uh, yeah, um, so that's 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 kind of my New Year's, re- New Year's resolution. And this podcast is going to be all about looking ahead. But before we do that, we need to look back briefly at a couple of updates from the end of last year. 
We recorded our last podcast episode on the 15th of December. Uh, Two days later, on the 17th, Martin Thomas, who was due to take up the role of chair at the Charity Commission beginning on the 26th of December, quit before he had even started in his job. The shock resignation came after the Times revealed that he had left a previous position as chair of the charity Women for Women following a bullying investigation and alleged inappropriate behaviour. So obviously this news raises serious question about the level of scrutiny and due diligence that was carried out ahead of Thomas's appointment, particularly as Women for Women had submitted a serious incident report about the bullying investigation to the Charity Commission itself. The government has said it is reviewing its processes in the wake of this news, but has declined to say much more about why this issue wasn't picked up. Thomas himself has apologised for, quote, an error of judgement on a technical omission during the application process and said he did not willfully mislead anyone at any time. So... In the meantime, Ian Carrot, who has been the chair of the commission on an interim basis since Baroness Stowell's stepped down in February 2021, has been asked to stay on in the role until late June. An advisory board appointed by the DCMS to sift through applicants for the charity commission chair role during that initial recruitment process had deemed seven shortlisted candidates to be suitable. But at the time of recording, it seems increasingly unlikely that the government will revert to this list to find a replacement for Thomas. The NCVO has called for the process to be restarted from scratch. So obviously we discussed this appointment in the penultimate episode of last year. Um, Rebecca, what are your thoughts on the update? <laughs> well, you know what, I stand by what I said about poets. So to remind listeners, Martin Thomas is also the chair of the Forward Poetry Foundation. Uh, and Joe Morgan of the Good Law Project had tweeted, no poet will lead a regulator whilst I have breath in my body. And I think it's possible that Morgan knew a bit about this this time story that was going to come out. But um, yeah, I believe my exact words at the time were, if the worst thing you can say about him is that he's a poet, then he seems better than the previous candidates. So yeah, it turns out being a suspected poet was not, in fact, the worst thing you could say about him. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but uh, obviously this is more of an issue. Um, so, but, you know, on a serious note, this job is really important to the sector and we haven't had a permanent chair in the role for the better part of a year now. And the government needs to get its act together and at the very least explain what it plans to do next and then get on with doing it. The news about Thomas overshadowed the other big story that broke the same day, which is the news that the Small Charities Coalition will close its doors this spring uh, because it couldn't secure sustainable funding. And at a time when the sector has been really under strain and small charities in particular are really struggling, we need a regulator that is fully engaged with the entirety of its remit. And that includes supporting charities as well as chastising them when they get things wrong. Um, you know, and I've been doing an analysis piece over the last week looking at what the impact of the closure is going to be. And I spoke to Duncan Shrubsole at the Lloyds Bank Foundation, which obviously funds a lot of the charities that are involved with the Small Charities Coalition and funded the Small Charities Coalition itself. And his point was that Early evidence suggests that when small charities were contacting the Commission for help with filing accounts and so on, the Commission was then referring those charities on to the SCC helpline, even though they were asking about the Commission's own rules. And he made the very good point that if the Small Charities Coalition isn't going to be around, the Charity Commission will have to start picking up some of the slack. You know, and, and the previous chair of the Charity Commission, Baroness Stahl, frequently took to the pages of the right-wing national press to criticise charities. But what the sector needs now is someone who is more interested in the nuts and bolts of how we maintain and support a healthy, thriving sector, more than this political grandstanding. And I think lots of people were hoping we'd found that in Martin Thomas. So, you know, hopefully we're going to get that from the next incumbent. 
Absolutely. I think it is extraordinary to reflect on the fact that this post has effectively remained unfilled for a you know, a year and such a challenging year for the sector to boot. Um, I doubt anybody is really jumping for joy at the prospect of having to restart that recruitment process from scratch. But, you know, as I said earlier, I can't see any way they'll be able to revert back to that shortlist, particularly given that Earlier this week, MPs took a number of senior civil servants to task over the hiring process during a DCMS select committee hearing, and it transpired that they had not requested references for Thomas or checked his track record with the Charity Commission, despite the fact that he had been a chair of 14 different charities. Um, I think they have to burn the whole thing to the ground and start again. So we could be in for a very long wait, and uh, it will just be a question of predicting what might happen next. Speaking of predictions, shall we uh, move on to our interview? Let's do it. As we have seen in recent years, or indeed in recent weeks, trying to predict the future can be a bit of a dicey business. Nevertheless, as this is the first episode of 2022, we thought we'd take a tentative look at what the coming year might hold for charities. To do so, we're joined by Rodri Davies, philanthropy expert in residence at the Pear Foundation, host of the Philanthropisms podcast and self-described philanthro nerd. Rodri, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so before we get started, we were chatting earlier about New Year's resolutions. Have you made any yourself? Um, not many. I've tried not to because I, I do sort of subscribe to that view that it's the worst possible time of the year to be imposing things upon yourself and just to <laughs> kind of cut yourself some slack. I think if anything, I'm trying to think of things to make life easier so i my one of my resolutions is actually just to work less i think having moved to a job that's sort of a portfolio the danger is i'm one of those people that finds work kind of bleeding into all of the rest of my life and so i want to be stricter with myself about taking some time off um and part of that is getting outside more uh, as well you know when you work at home it's easy actually just to end up sort of chained to your desk um through no one's fault but your own and forcing myself to get out the door and go for a walk every day uh, i think is is pretty vital so i'm going to do that more that's a great resolution yeah and so um we have had a really extraordinary couple of years in the sector i don't think anyone going into the beginning of 2020 could have anticipated quite where we would be 2 years down the line um so we are now looking into 2022 um it's been a very very weird time for the sector what do you think are going to be the major challenges for charities in the year ahead um, yeah, well, thanks for asking and, and getting me on to, to give some thoughts. I mean, I'll definitely agree with what you said uh, up front that in a lot of ways trying to actually predict the future is entirely a mugs game. So I guess these are sort mm. of informed thoughts rather than firm predictions. Um, but I mean, guess my first one and probably the biggest one linking to what I was saying about my own resolutions, I think there's a real danger that we all need to be aware of over the coming year about the sort of human impact of the pandemic on the people working in the sector um, and, you know, the risk of burnout um, at an individual level. I mean, I've seen lots of colleagues and friends within the sector really kind of finding it difficult, um, lots of people moving jobs, some of them within the sector, but lots of people also leaving the sector. So I think that's something that'll will continue i think there's also you know still a question about whether we're really to see the the actual impacts of the pandemic i think in some ways some of them the sector's been kind of shielded by policy decisions around things like furlough um and and also other things that have kind of counterbalanced some of the economic impacts and i wonder whether 
we're going to see that this year actually the impact on disposable incomes and donations we might now see it at the same time i'm sure we're going to see increased rising demand i think there's there's a basket of of other things in terms of challenges um which are also opportunities i think one thing that we all very well know um that's happened during the pandemic is there's been this sort of very heavily accelerated shift towards working digitally through necessity and we've all had to get used to using kind of online meeting tools and working in 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 sort of remote ways and a lot of that i think is quite positive and has and has kind of opened up new opportunities but i think we might start to see what some of the risks are uh, in terms of that both both in terms of what's lost um through the human connection of of offline ways of working and doing events and things like that but also in terms of quite pragmatic things like cybersecurity I think as people are being asked to work from home or wanting to work from home, actually, you know, the, the sector was always slightly more prone than some others to, to cybersecurity risks. And I think there's a danger that it might become seen as a kind of easy target. And there have been a few sort of examples of that already. And I think that's something certainly that we need to, to watch out for over the coming year. Yeah, so th- there is a lot to chew over there and a lot of challenges ahead f- from that. So, so yeah, Obviously, we can't get away from talking about the pandemic. And as you said, you know, the sector has been shielded so far. Do you think this is going to be kind of a crunch point for charities? And and, and is there anything charities can be doing to mitigate that? I I mean, insofar as, you know, it makes sense to guess about what's happening with the pandemic, I I think, yes, I certainly don't think, you know, we're we're not out of the woods. I I think the, the main thing that I kind of feel about the pandemic is any sense that we had at the outset that the pandemic was going to be some sort of finite thing and that we all just had to knuckle down for six months or you know then a year or 18 months and then we'd be out of it seems to have gone by the wayside i think everybody's realizing that it's more a kind of slow process of normalization and getting used to the fact that this is kind of with us to stay in one form or another um and you know in terms that's both in terms of our kind of personal lives and the you know the need to kind of adapt to that but also i think certainly over this coming year the main thing the only thing we can be certain of is uncertainty which sounds like a very glib thing to say but i think that's it i think anyone who was sort of planning quite firmly for right well we'll be shifting back to in-person things everybody will be going back to the office I think everything needs to have a plan B or a plan C or D or whatever. Um, And, you know, whenever you're planning any piece of work or any event or anything like that, you need to make sure that you're kind of taking into account all of the potential um, barriers that, you know, the the pandemic and the new surprises that it might throw up might bring to bear. So I think that's kind of the, the surest thing that we can say. And then the rest of it slightly remains to be seen. It's very hard to predict, for instance, with things like charitable giving, what impact an event like the pandemic will have it seems certain that it will have some kind of impact but nobody really knows what the macroeconomic effect of it is yet and and how that will filter down to what people to decide to do in terms of donations is still very much tbc i think Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think what's really interesting just to bounce off what you've said there is that throughout the pandemic, I do think we went through these phases where we initially thought it will be a six month thing and we will just knuckle down and we'll get through that. that. And you were talking there about, you know, the impact on, on donors and the impact on things like funding. There was definitely a phase in the first sort of six months of 2020 where we saw lots of big funders and grant makers pivoting to very specific pandemic relief programs trying to deal with that initial outset and they were channeling their funds into organizations working on the front line of course you know we're now into this longer term this more uncertain outlook it's not as though we can just keep 
funneling pandemic funds into, you know, a small group of charities. And I think that uncertainty, particularly with things like live fundraising events, will not be necessarily back. Um, we haven't seen anything near like a pre-pandemic return, even at the times where the country as a whole has been been opening up again. Um, and those longer term impacts, um, the inequalities are going to be worsening um, and, and charities are going to be working more and more. That funding problem then does become a lot more complicated and a lot more uncertain as you've said, it's very hard to predict how people are going to respond to this. Um, but what do you think that uncertainty is going to be doing um, in terms of the behaviour of grant-making bodies, funders, and, and, and even the general public who are going to be making those donations? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I think there's certainly this in in terms of what you've said there. Some some things that I think we should definitely keep a, a watching eye on. I mean. Maybe it's easier to predict the behaviour in a way of institutional funders and sort of grant-making bodies. I, I think you're right that there have been some changes that were made through necessity in, in the short term over the pandemic and lots of organisations, as you say, shifting not just what they were funding, so sort of shifting very much towards funding frontline responses to the pandemic, which was understandable in the short term, but I think presented some concerns longer term about whether other sectors or different types of organizations would would end up suffering more as a result but also in how they were funding so i think those shifts towards moving away from kind of restricted programmatic funding towards recognizing that actually you needed flexible just kind of core cost funding uh, over the short term as organizations totally had to kind of rip up their plans and, and adapt to the pandemic a lot of, of funders that I've spoken to, you know, the, the good thing about that was, you know, they found that the ceiling didn't fall in on them and actually it worked quite well. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting conversations now about the extent to which the the grant making world can kind of shift from a default mindset of everything needs to be restricted and with lots of strings attached to actually let's take more of a trust-based approach and just kind of give grantees the money and trust that they know what to do with it. It's still like so many things to do with the pandemic remains to be seen whether that will remain a trend or kind of herald any longer term shift or whether everybody will kind of go back to business as usual um, after the pandemic. I, th I think there's also something really interesting there about timescales around funding, because, again, I think what you were saying there is in that early phase of the pandemic, particularly, it was easy for everybody to sort of say, well, let's just take all of the money that we've got and we need to put it on solving the immediate problems of the pandemic because this is a once in a lifetime crisis. And I think as it as it went on and on and we realised that it wasn't necessarily something that could be solved in six months or a year or anything like that, actually more funders started to think, hang on a minute, we probably need to balance that sense of urgency with a recognition that our role is to kind of stay with things over the slightly longer term. And I think there is a really interesting discussion about about balancing that sense of urgency and getting money out the door now with how do we kind of fund things over that longer term, which is relevant to other issues that are, you know, in a lot of ways, just as pressing as the pandemic, like the climate crisis. Again, I think there's an argument there that actually a lot more money needs to get out of the door a lot sooner from a lot of, of grant makers and funders to try and address these very, very pressing issues. But at the same time, 
you know do they need to make sure that they're around over the next decade or the next 20 years as well because there will almost inevitably be work for them to do just in terms of thinking about kind of individual donors rather than institutional ones i think there's a couple of things i'll just throw in um on on the kind of high end of the market and sort of philanthropists i guess the the two interesting things there, I mean, there's, there's plenty I think you could say. One is a, an awareness within the sector, maybe, as people kind of look at the figures on on giving and levels of giving, that actually philanthropy is a pretty important source of funding for the sector. I think the overall amounts in terms of how much is given have stayed relatively static over quite a long period of time. But what's happening underneath that when you look at the figures is that we're increasingly reliant on a sort of smaller number of donors who are giving a larger average amount. So actually, the pool of donors is diminishing, and there's fewer people giving, but they're giving more. And actually, does, you know, is the is the sector kind of aware of the fact that it is increasingly reliant on on this smaller pool of donors? And does that require more organisations to get up to speed with what it means to fund, you know, to fundraise from philanthropists? Is there going to be kind of more competition for fundraising from those philanthropists? Um, I think for philanthropists themselves, one interesting thing is, uh, you know, the the idea that where wealth comes from is quite important when you're thinking about giving it away. This whole question of is it possible to just kind of take money that's come from anywhere and do good with it because once you've given it to a charity, it's it's all fine and it kind of gets morally cleansed. I don't think anybody really buys that anymore, and we've seen that in you know all of the kind of individual examples around things like the Sackler family and the controversy over them or people like you know Jeffrey Epstein the disgraced financier who gave lots of money to MIT Media Lab but also you know with corporate donors and others who come from things like the fossil fuel industry lots of higher education institutions um museums and galleries and others are either increasingly uncomfortable themselves with taking that kind of money or they're finding that they're getting a lot of criticism from you know the public or from their other supporters about it so this question of whether some money you know you need to kind of say no to or whether it's better to take the money and try and put it towards good purposes is one i think that will continue to rumble on over over the coming year and then i just say finding out the kind of lower level of giving two of the interesting things are are we going to see more shifts in what people give to both in terms of cause areas, because I think there were some interesting shifts over the course of the pandemic as people started to kind of look more initially at frontline services, but also kind of closer to home and think about locally giving and that kind of thing. And will that mean that, that people think more in that way longer term? Also, in terms of the kinds of things that people are able to give and where they're able to do it, I think there's there's the sort of model of online giving, which is just let's take what you would do in the physical world and shift it online. But increasingly, there are sort of things that are only possible in the digital world and there's some interesting stuff there about how you tap into kind of the gaming community for instance or the rise of things like nfts and what that means for for charities you know as a new type of asset that you can fundraise for so i think there are there are kind of lots of things bubbling along that again as we hopefully start to transition out of the pandemic we'll get a sense of how many of them have have resulted in real long-term changes. And I wanted to pick up actually on something you touched on a couple of times there around this issue of kind of the environment and sort of wider impacts and things like that. And, you know, we've seen charities increasingly realise that they have a role to play in tackling issues which may not be directly related to their cause, but which do affect everyone. So climate change being one issue, racial justice being another one. How do you think that trend is going to develop over the next year? Yeah, it's interesting this. I end up talking to people a lot about this and asking for their opinion when I, I do the podcast. And and I don't know whether it's just because I personally believe that it has to be the case, but I do get a sense that a lot of people feel 
that 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 is the the way in which we need to be looking at some of these issues that some of these these issues are so cross-cutting and so big and so urgent and i would include things like the climate crisis and racial justice and uh inequality in that 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 we can't really see them as sort of cause areas that exist on a list alongside others and you can say oh well that's not our cause area so we don't need to to worry about it they're actually cross-cutting issues that everybody has to take into account or i guess maybe like lenses that you need to view all of what you do through and i think when it comes to something like the climate or or indeed racial justice actually for charities or for grant makers it's not a question of are you an environmental organization and then and what are you doing about the climate crisis the question is how does everything that you do you know not have a negative effect in terms of climate and and hopefully have a positive effect and that includes your grant making your operations your hiring practices your working practices your investments all of those things and you know i I just it it, the collective responsibility on all of us to do something about climate extends to charities and the people who work within them and indeed grant making organizations so for me it has to that has to be the way that we look at these things and I think we are seeing a lot of um, organisations and a lot of charities are starting to grapple with this and, and to try and engage on that broader level. Now, on the flip side of that, we're also seeing quite a big backlash coming in against some of these organisations for doing exactly that. I mean, look at the National Trust, OK? They produced one report in August 2020, which looked at the history of colonialism on some of their properties. They spent the last year, you know, having this this kickback from people like Oliver Dowden, who was saying, you know, stick to your knitting, you know, think about your mission is to preserve history and to make nice historical properties. And you're being too woke when you start to engage with things like racial justice, you know, similarly, the RNLI, um, it saves lives at sea, but it's found itself, you know, uh, facing repeated right wing attacks for saying, actually sticking to its mission, but for saying, you know, we are going to go out and pick up people trying to cross the channel because that's part of what we do. And people are saying, oh, this is outside of your remit and all the rest of it. Do you think, you know, this, this, well, I would be really surprised if this tension doesn't kind of continue and we don't, you know, continue to see all these rows over what constitutes being sort of too political for charities to engage in. Um, you know, how do you see this continuing to, to roll out? And, um, you know, what do you think the sector collectively should be doing to take these sort of repeated attacks on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I totally agree that I don't think we've in any way seen the end of, of this and the whole idea of sort of culture wars and dragging charities into them. And I guess it's, it's, it's sort of unsurprising in a lot of ways in that what charities do is inherently kind of values laden. And so even just by doing some things and not doing other things, you inevitably kind of bring in questions of ethics and values. I think the thing that's bothered me, well, there's a few things that have bothered me quite a lot about this whole uh, sort of uh, debate over the culture wars. One is that the the argument that kind of there are the the sphere of, of what should be seen as political now extends to anything where even anybody can sort of have a view that's on the other side and 
the idea that the responsibility of charities on any given issue is to sort of reflect and represent both of those sides that seems to me absolutely ludicrous um and also kind of totally ignores the history of the sector like the yes on any given issue there have been charities on both sides of them and and you take something like suffrage you know everybody thinks the story of that is oh well everybody was you know organizations within the charity sector and and others were kind of fighting for universal suffrage and then they got it uh and you know yeah there was quite a lot of violence and that kind of thing in the interim but actually there was a very strong anti-suffrage movement as well and there were lots of charities and big donors who were very keen on on there not being suffrage and in a way that's fine it reflects the fact that the sector is hugely pluralistic and you know it's as broad as the views of the people in the society that make it up and that's fine and not every charity needs to be on both sides of an argument and that kind of both sidesing of everything i think is quite insidious because it allows you then to argue that anything an organization is doing is political in some sense I think even then, the idea that being political is, you know, with a small p is somehow a bad thing. I don't know where that came from. Again, you know, yes, we have quite, to be honest, in this country, we have pretty firm rules on the distinction between engaging in political activity in furtherance of a cause that is, you know, listed as your charitable cause and not just having a political purpose. Now, whether or not that's the the right way to frame things, that's how things are. And most charities, I think, are pretty good about navigating that. And actually, I think it's, you know, politicians and commentators who come in and criticise who misunderstand these things. I think that being said, going back to what we were saying before about the the argument that charities should actually take into account things like the climate crisis and, and racial justice, even if those aren't their cause area, that does require them to to kind of think about how they present that and explain it to their supporters and to the general public. And and to me, the model for this is the argument that you would have to make as an organisation to explain why you were you were investing ethically. And there's a whole kind of literature about this, and there's the CC nine guidance from from the Commission, and whole kind of you know legal debates about how you do it. Because I think that too often, sort of trustees feel as though you know, oh, well, we're not allowed to to do that even if we wanted to because our responsibility as trustees is just to maximise the amount of financial return. But actually, there's, you know, there's a whole kind of discussion and, and guidance about actually if you can explain why you need to to be able to invest ethically and you can make an argument about why either it kind of you know matches up with your um, your mission as an organisation or kind of doesn't, you know, directly contravene it, or can go beyond that and say, actually, it's in our interest reputationally over the long term because people would expect us to be more ethical or kind of, you know, to take the environment into account. Uh, Actually, you can sort of make that argument. And it is important there, I think, for charities to realise that you need to distinguish between what the individual views of you as a person working in it or as a trustee might be about some of these issues and how that gets explained in terms of what the organisation is doing because I think that's where the danger lies and that's where the criticisms sometimes land is if those saying, oh, charities, you know, they're just kind of full of woke liberals and they're a fifth column that's trying to kind of undermine the government. If it looks like the people working with them are just using it as a way to kind of promote their own views about the world and haven't kind of filtered that through the the you know the institutional structure of the the charity that is kind of a problem i think because it does make them liable to that criticism so for me what charities need to be able to do 
is explain if they are going to take into account issues around things like racial justice or the climate why that is the right thing for them to do as an organization and actually you know is because that meets the expectations of their supporters or is the best way of of kind of achieving their charitable mission and if they can do that then they need to sort of stand up robustly uh you know having made that argument and i think that's you know the national trust has been great on from that point of view they have very clearly argued you know this is why we're doing it this is why it fits in with our mission and our history no we're not going off and doing some sort of you know crazy woke campaign because we want to actually we're just we're we're fulfilling our remit to explain the history the historical context behind the properties that we own and manage and that's actually what we should be doing as a charity um and you know actually i think they've pushed back very effectively yeah, absolutely. And it's, as you say, it's a challenge that's kind of going to keep sort of rumbling on. Um, are there any other issues that you think charities should be keeping on their radar as they look forward into 2022? I think going back to the the what we were talking about there to do with the whole sort of question of the culture war, I think there's a kind of a broader issue that that brings to bear, which is what is the the sort of relationship between the charity sector and government? That relationship is always kind of goes in in waves, and there are times when the charity sector has had a very good relationship with the government. There are times when it's probably been too much on the inside, and almost you know some organisations have ended up almost seeing themselves as sort of quasi state entities. I think there's been an interesting rebalancing over the last few years, when maybe a, some organisations have realised that maybe we as a sector had bought too much into the idea that that charities should be seen as kind of public service delivery agents for government and it was all about commissioning and public service delivery and actually we need to focus on the bits that are also about kind of voice and challenging government but i think also in order to do that effectively we need to figure out what that balance is between outsider influencing and just kind of shouting at government from the sidelines and the insider influencing. And I do feel as though there is a question about how effective that insider influencing is as a sector at the moment. I think in individual subsectors, there are some organisations being really effective. I think as a sector as a whole, you know, it's always been a bit of a challenge, but it feels a particular challenge at the moment to have a seat at the table in some of the policy discussions that are going on. And and one of the reasons for that links to something else that I think is a challenge for the sector, which is it feels as though the infrastructure for the sector is particularly weak at the moment. Um, and that's, a, it's a real, it's a surprise in a lot of ways, because it feels as though one of the things the pandemic sort of highlighted early on was how important that infrastructure is, and how difficult it is to build it from scratch very quickly. But it, at the same time, nobody's sort of turned around and gone, oh, well, we really need to invest in it so that we don't find ourselves in this situation again. And, you know, I feel as though the infrastructure bodies in the sector have been particularly hard hit, certainly in terms of losing staff and kind of their resources. And a lot of them are, I mean, I'm not sure whether running on empty is too pejorative. I think they're still doing really good work, but they're having to do that with vastly diminished resources. And that means that their ability to kind of engage with government and represent the sector or their members is is that much less than it was and i think that's that's a cause for concern for all of us and i think that is a real shame at a time when you know we've seen them collaborate in such you know in a way that we were could only dream about a few years back like it's it, the the level of, of of working together and opening up those channels and communications has been incredibly impressive from those organizations but yeah as you say still very limited by resources and we have you know only in the last couple of weeks uh, very sadly seen the closure announced of the small charities coalition 
as well, which was a, a very important infrastructure body um, with 16,000 members who uh, are now going to be losing uh, a very vital resource and a source of support and questions uh, still to come about where those needs are now going to be met. But let's not end it all on a note of um, doom and gloom. This is not how we want to go into a brand new year. Rodri, are there any opportunities out there? Is there anything that you're really optimistic and excited about as you look forward? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put my optimism hat on, which is let's have the optimism hat. definitely small, smaller hat than my pessimism hat. But <laughs> yeah, I think there are one is actually as people are shifting towards having remote teams or kind of, you know, I've seen quite a lot of people taking on new staff and, and doing them as, as remote positions over the course of the pandemic. And one of the things about that that I'm hopeful of is that it might result in a bit of a rebalancing of the geography of the sector, which I think is still quite heavily skewed towards London and the southeast. And, you know, that's fine. There's lots of people working there who want to live and work there. And there's lots of very good people. But there's also loads of people in other parts of the country who could be working or would like to work in the sector and work for, you know, national organisations or infrastructure bodies, but just couldn't in the past because of geography. And suddenly you open up this talent pool that that wasn't there before, if you're willing to, to allow people to work remotely, or at least partly remotely. And so there's a big opportunity, I think, for organisations that are looking to take on new staff or to expand to kind of tap into some of that and get some really great people either already within the sector or to bring them into the sector for the first time so you know i think that's that's cause for optimism um i think as well as you know the challenges around fundraising the fact that it'd be difficult to return to some of the sort of in-person fundraising and and sort of big physical events um that we've had in the past there are also potentially new opportunities i think lots of organizations have done some really interesting innovative stuff with digital forms of fundraising because they've had to over the pandemic and i think it'll be really interesting for organizations when it comes to fundraising not to think of it as a sort of add-on to what they do or an afterthought but to start out you know thinking what can we do digitally as well as maybe uh, online um i think around the you know the again the challenge of sort of being more reliant on on philanthropy and philanthropic funding that we talked about there is also an opportunity there and i think it's it's quite an untapped resource for lots of organizations so i think sort of understanding how philanthropy works at that kind of you know higher level and how you might uh, fundraise from people with slightly larger amounts of money or from grant making organizations for organizations that haven't done it before I think, you know, there's an opportunity there if, if they can find those sources of money and, and tap into them, you know, potentially that's that could be really beneficial for them. Um, I think the two other things are, I think there's something really interesting about how charities can work more with some of the new forms of organisations that we're seeing. So there was a, a lot of interest in mutual aid groups that sprung up during the pandemic but even before that was a lot of kind of focus on some of these new forms of sort of digital social organizing and movements like extinction rebellion and black lives matter and the the sort of impact that they've had and getting to scale really quickly and and sort of getting huge profile and i think there's a load of really interesting questions about why those are the organizations that have been at the forefront of lots of big social change campaigns over over the last few years rather than traditional charities you know does it say something about an appetite for participation that people have and an appetite to sort of get involved in a meaningful way that that charities maybe haven't been offering as much as they should because they've fallen into being a bit too transactional with their supporters and what can they learn from some of these types of organizations or even what can they do to work with them or to partner with them so that you get the sort of strengths of both and, and minimize the weaknesses so i'd love to see more of that 
And then the final one, I guess, is I still feel as though there's a really valuable role for the sector, the charity sector and civil society more broadly in kind of looking ahead and and offering more positive visions of what the future could look like. Because I think often there's a sense of sort of inevitability about lots of things and about the direction of travel, of technology and the way society's going. But none of it's inevitable. And actually, one thing the pandemic's shown us is very very surprising events will you know can and do happen um and that might be one-off events but it's also just how things develop more broadly um and charities shouldn't see themselves as just sort of you know being carried along by the tide of that actually more thought needs to be given to finding spaces where charities and civil society organizations can kind of think about what they know about the people and communities that maybe don't get heard so much around the country and what they care about and how their lives are changing and actually sort of offer up visions for what the future might look like or what it could look like that are a bit more optimistic and sort of positive and not necessarily driven by the private sector or by government. Um, And that requires resourcing and it requires finding the time and space to allow people to do that when most of the time they've got their heads down just trying to keep the lights on and do the day job. Um, But if, you know, funders can support that and philanthropists can support that and and others, then maybe we can get some really sort of exciting uh, new ideas from civil society that can kind of point us ahead to the future. Absolutely. Well, there you go. That's plenty to aim for. Seems like a really good place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us, Rodri. Great. Thanks for having me. So that was Rodri Davis giving us his top lines for the new year, what to expect. And in alignment with new things, we're now going to have two new voices delivering this week's Good News Bulletin. Each week, we're bringing you a Good News Bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. I'm Alina Martin, third sector editorial assistant. And I'm Amy Horton, editorial intern, and here are the stories that have caught our attention this week. First up is a tale with some exciting twists and turns from a charity shop in Worcester. It involves some Lord of the Rings books, and it kind of became a little trilogy in itself. So in the week running up to Christmas, St. Richard's Hospice shared on social media that a set of first edition Lord of the Rings books had been stolen from one of their charity shops. Uh, They had been locked in a glass cabinet and were reported missing at midday on a Sunday afternoon. Now, obviously, for a charity shop to have anything stolen is a horrible situation. But this was a particular blow as these books could have raised an impressive £1,495 for the charity, which cares for adults with serious progressive illnesses and offers support for their loved ones. A social media campaign to retrieve the books uh, then subsequently ensued with hundreds of shares across various platforms. But by the time Christmas came around, it hadn't yet come to anything. Then on the 29th of December, as if by some kind of Christmas miracle, as one of the employees was tidying, they found all three of the books carefully placed in amongst the store's bookshelves. Whoever the culprit was, they had clearly seen the army of support on social media and were perhaps overcome by their conscience. When I was reading the story, I immediately pictured some Ebenezer Scrooge-type figure who was, you know, moved to return the books after being visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future, or more likely they were haunted by the ghosts of Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I imagine we'll never know 
what happened. But I know, Elena, you had another theory. Yes, I did. And mine was a little bit more cynical. I just imagined that whoever this was, they realized it would have been impossible for them to sell the books without exposing themselves after all the publicity. But I do like this thief with a conscience version better. So let's stick with that. Well, to complete the saga, the books have actually now been sold. Um, They were snapped up by a Saudi-based businessman and talking enthusiast who had seen the coverage of the story on the BBC. And they were actually the shop's first sale of the year, which is hopefully a great omen for the year to come for the hospice. Alina, what have you got for us? I have a story about a man who received a parcel full of $100 bills sent to him anonymously to help his students. So this is a story about Vinod Menon, a physics professor and chairman of the physics department at City College of New York, who returned to his office after it had been closed for a year and amongst piles and piles of junk mail, he found a cardboard box that had been delivered to him anonymously, and when he opened it, he discovered it contained $180,000 in cash. Um, the box was postmarked the 10th of November 2020, so it had sat in his office for a year during the pandemic. And there was also a letter postmarked the day after the parcel, which was also addressed to Dr. Menon. And in it, the donor said that they had studied a bachelor's degrees in physics and mathematics at the university, which led to further study and eventually to an incredibly rewarding career, which makes sense considering the amount of money they're giving away. And they wanted to make sure that deserving students who studied the same degree could continue to benefit from the amazing education that the program offered, regardless of financial background. Because of the unheard amount of money, though, the police had to get involved and make sure that the money was not tied to any illegal activity, which fortunately wasn't the case. But after a month-long investigation into the return addresses on both parcel and letter, Police officials had to admit that the mystery donor was truly untraceable. We don't know who they are, where they are, but if they're listening, wherever they may be, my address is flat too. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Thank you so much, Alina and Amy. Uh, it's really fun, intriguing stories there. What would you do if someone sent you $180,000 in cash in an unmarked box? I mean, assume that this is the beginning of like a Sunday night ITV drama and they've got the wrong person and I'm about to get chased like some kind of farce. I, I, it just sounds terrifying, frankly. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, wire transfers do exist, my friend. Yeah, uh, I know. So wherever that money's coming from, like I got questions and no wonder the police had questions. I bet they did, but seemingly untraceable. So hopefully it will just be a great thing for that college. Uh, brilliant. Well, um, here's hoping we all start the new year with a, a, an unexpected but traceable cash gift. Uh, windfall. Windfall would be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Rodri Davis, and to our new team members, Alina Martin and Amy Horton. And of course, to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. Bye.